When we tell the stories of the grand military campaigns throughout history, they are dominated by operations to charge through the enemy's main lines, push the enemy back, and drive them to ultimate defeat. However, another form of attack has long been a staple of military campaigns, but it doesn't seek to hold territory it captures. Instead, a raid aims to achieve an objective such as destroying vital supplies or an enemy's headquarters before retreating back to friendly lines. A raiding force often has to be aggressive, well-equipped, and able to defend itself, for often they lack support from other units And above all, they must be mobile in order to reach their objective and then escape. It is without question a terrifyingly risky endeavor, and as a result, there are many that end in tragedy and disaster. In today's episode, we're going to look at three of the raids from World War II that for a variety of reasons went horribly wrong. Welcome to Wars of the World. After his invasion of Poland and the subsequent declaration of war by Britain and France, Hitler knew that eventually his forces were going to have to strike west. But there were two key problems standing in his way. The first was the great French Maginot defensive line, a series of fortifications and obstacles the French hoped would contain the German army on their side of their shared 230 mile long border. The second was that despite his army's successes thus far, Hitler knew his forces lacked either the firepower or resources to smash through this line in a direct assault, or engaged in a prolonged campaign to wear down the French defenses. Hitler therefore decided that if he couldn't go through the Maginot Line, he would simply have to go around it, and that meant invading Belgium, Holland, and Luxembourg, which had declared themselves neutral. Unlike the military juggernauts of Britain and France, Hitler expected to sweep these countries aside quickly, allowing his troops to bypass the Maginot Line and flood into France, taking key objectives and strangling supply lines, thus forcing the French army to surrender. It would also provide him with airfields from which he could strike Britain. However, Hitler was also reminded that the Kaiser had undertaken a similar tactic in World War I, and that ended with the Western Front getting bogged down in an almost completely static trench war. He knew that his forces had to act quickly and decisively, lest he risk drawing in more forces against him, forcing Germany into a war of attrition that she could not win. To help speed the victory in the so-called Low Countries, The German commanders concocted a bold plan to force Holland to surrender within a single day. They employed the tactic of cutting off the snake's head so that the body would die. They were going to use paratroopers to swoop down on The Hague 
and capture the Dutch Queen Wilhelmina and her army's commander-in-chief, Henry Winkelmann, and force them to surrender, thus allowing German forces to swoop south into Belgium and then France without Dutch opposition. The invasion of Holland by German forces on Friday, May 10th, 1940, saw a then unprecedented use of airborne troops, some 12,000 being parachuted in. Prior to the opening of the assault, a force of German aircraft flew over Holland and out to the North Sea. The hope was that this would convince the Dutch forces that the aircraft were on a bombing mission against Great Britain, so they would be caught off guard when they turned back and attacked from the north. However, this was not the case. Instead, the aircraft sent alarm throughout Holland, and people quickly rushed to shelters, or in some cases, took up arms to defend their homes, while the army quickly mobilized. The German aircraft bombed Dutch army barracks and airfields around The Hague in preparation for the airborne assault to capture Queen Wilhelmina. Shortly after 415 hours, as first light was breaking up the night sky, German paratroopers landed on the very airfields where, just moments before, their bombs had fallen. However, they still encountered extremely heavy Dutch resistance from the moment they landed. While the Germans were eventually able to capture the airfields and use them to fly in some of their heavier equipment they needed to take The Hague, the airfield Volkenberg was left in such poor condition that it was unusable forcing the Germans to land in nearby fields and a nearby beach, at which point the Dutch Navy began shelling them. However, hopes for a German breakout from the airfields were soon dashed, as Dutch forces launched a counter-attack, including air raids being carried out by a handful of Dutch Air Force Fokker TV twin-engined bombers. Outnumbered, and at times having to rely on Dutch weapons as they expended their own supplies of ammunition, the German paratroopers were slowly forced to give up the airfields, and they began fighting a retreat as they broke up into disorganized groups and fled into the nearby woods, hoping to link up with their main invasion force. Figures for the Germans put their losses at up to 400 killed and 1,750 captured, out of a total force in the region of 3,000. For the Dutch, it was a story of triumph, in an otherwise tragic tale. On the main front lines, the Germans were forcing the Dutch to give up town after town as they advanced. Then on May 14th, the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, devastated the city of Rotterdam with an air raid that killed over 900 people and left up to 85,000 homeless. To prevent further suffering amongst their people, the Dutch surrendered that afternoon and Queen Wilhelmina fled to Britain where she formed a government in exile to organize Dutch resistance. The common narrative of the Battle of Britain is one of brave RAF fighter pilots scrambling to their aircraft to dogfight with the numerically superior German Luftwaffe, bent on destroying their airfields and later their cities from above. However, this is not the whole story of the RAF during this crucial battle. In fact, while fighter command were tangling with German aircraft over Southeast England, RAF Bomber Command was on the offensive, taking the fight to the Germans' own bases. In the second week of August alone, 
RAF bombers conducted 24 raids against German fighter and bomber bases in Western Europe to help the beleaguered fighter command, but it was a difficult and deadly business. Often the bombers flew without any fighter protection because there simply weren't any to spare, so instead they tried to use clouds to hide themselves from the sharp eyes of the German fighter pilots and anti-aircraft gunners. Sometimes it worked, often it didn't. On August 13th, 1940, 12 Bristol Blenheim bombers of number 82 Squadron Bomber Command lifted off from RAF Watton in Norfolk, their target being the German-held airfield at Aalborg in occupied Denmark. The Blenheim was at the time the backbone of Bomber Command and was one of the fastest bombers in the world in the years leading up to the outbreak of the war. Pilots enjoyed flying it in peacetime, but in war, as one RAF pilot put it, it was as damage resistant as an electric light bulb. The British formation was under the command of one wing commander, Edward Collis de Verac Lart, an experienced and aggressive officer. In order to attack Alborg, the Blenheims would be flying to the very limits of their range, but as the formation approached the Danish coast for one of the bombers, the numbers regarding fuel and their predicted range were not adding up. Realizing that the bomber was burning fuel faster than it should have been, Lart ordered its pilots to return to base. It later transpired that the pilot got his fuel-air mixture wrong, hence the higher-than-expected fuel consumption. The remaining 11 Blenheims pressed on over the Danish coast, but sighting land, they came to realize that whilst over the featureless sea, they had strayed off course 55 kilometers to the south. Worse still, ahead of them, the expected cloud cover had evaporated, leaving behind clear blue skies and nowhere for them to hide. Nevertheless, Wing Commander Lart decided to press on with the attack on Alborg as German troops on the ground spied them through binoculars and began relaying their position to their commanders. At 1205 hours, eight Messerschmitt BF-109E fighters were scrambled to intercept the British bombers, but they were too late for they were already on their final approach to the airfield. Operating in two waves, the Blenheims found themselves facing intense flak, but the six aircraft that made up the first wave, including Lartz, managed to penetrate the airbase's defensive and dropped their bombs. However, the remaining five in the second wave, less than one minute behind, were not so fortunate. At approximately 12.18 hours, the first Blenheim was hit by anti-aircraft fire and sent plummeting to Earth killing the three crew on board. It was followed by a second Blenheim just two minutes later. Two of that crew got out, but 20-year-old gunner Sergeant Edward Turner was not so lucky. In just a few short minutes, the remaining three Blenheims of the second wave were blasted out of the sky by German flak. Of the 15 men on board the five aircraft, just five managed to bail out to safety, only to be taken prisoner. As for the first wave, their horror was about to begin. Having bombed the airfield, the fighter pilots waited patiently for the six Blenheims to come out of the flak so they could pounce on them and take revenge. Almost as soon as they were clear of the flak, the German fighter pilots claimed their first victim. In the frenzy of combat that followed, the heavily armed BF-109s raked the British formation with gunfire, 
at one point sending two of the British planes down simultaneously. Within 15 minutes of the first aircraft falling to flak, the force of 11 bombers had been decimated down to just two survivors, including Lart's aircraft. The German fighter pilots, running low on ammunition, made one final attack, sending the wing commander's aircraft burning to the ground, claiming the lives of all who were on board, and leaving the last Blenheim to escape out to the coast, trailing smoke. However, its crew realized that they were in no condition to fly the length of the North Sea back to the UK, and so, with a heavy heart, Sergeant John Oates turned the doomed Blenheim back around and made a crash landing on the Danish coast before surrendering to the Germans. With that, the entire offensive force had been lost. Only 13 of the 33 airmen who attacked Alborg survived to be taken prisoner. But for some, this was not the end of their war stories. Sergeant William McGrath, whose aircraft had fallen to flak, escaped from his prisoner of war camp in November of 1941. In an incredible story of survival, he crossed through occupied France in the north, pro-German France in the south, and then through Spain before reaching freedom in British Gibraltar and then home to Britain in March of 1942. Sergeant John Bristow only narrowly escaped his crashing Blenheim, his parachute only having enough time to open moments before he struck the ground. During his time as a prisoner of war, the rather resourceful Bristow fashioned together several primitive radios for him and his fellow allied prisoners to listen in in order to keep up morale and follow the events of the war. A Little Bit de Todo is a podcast about a little bit of everything for curious minds of all ages. I'm Christina, and you can tune in every weekday to learn about things like Cinco de Mayo, Chihuahuas, and volcanoes in Latin America. Episodes are bite-sized, 10 minutes long or less, and always Latin American related. Subscribe and follow A Little Bit de Todo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. There was probably only one man in 1941 that the British wanted to kill more than Hitler, and that was Field Marshal Erwin Rommel, known universally as the Desert Fox. The North African campaign began with Italy's Benito Mussolini looking to take advantage of Britain's impending collapse by launching an invasion of Egypt, which was at the time under British rule. Yet despite his forces at times possessing a 10 to 1 numerical advantage, British Commonwealth troops totally outclassed the Italian army, and soon they were on the offensive into Italian-held Libya. Mussolini cried out for help from Hitler, and so the Fuhrer created the German army's Africa Corps, under the command of Rommel. The Africa Corps' influence was felt immediately. British Commonwealth troops soon found themselves in full retreat across North Africa, as Rommel appeared unstoppable. Being the face of their enemy, a mythos developed amongst the British Commonwealth troops surrounding Rommel, that he was the ultimate tactician, and he simply could not be stopped. In actuality, modern historians now debate whether Rommel was as great a leader as his reputation would suggest with supporters on both sides of the argument locked in fierce defense of their position regarding his influence tactically on the North African front 
at least when compared with the other factors that inhibited the Allied war effort. The idolizing of Rommel by the British forces was a serious cause for concern amongst commanders, for it seriously damaged morale. Therefore, efforts were made to locate Rommel so he could be taken out of the picture one way or the other and prove that the Desert Fox was not unstoppable. These efforts took on greater importance towards the end of 1941, when the British 8th Army prepared for a major counter-offensive against the Germans and Italians under the banner of Operation Crusader. The operation had two major objectives. The first was to defeat Rommel's vaunted tank forces in Libya. They could then move on and lift the siege of Tobruk, where the British Commonwealth forces had been holding out since April. Prime Minister Winston Churchill had high hopes for the plan, but the troops were all too aware that a previous operation in June, dubbed Operation Battleaxe, had failed to achieve its goals. The British command knew that to give the operation the best chance of success, it would have to neutralize Rommel. In doing so, they would not only disrupt the Axis chain of command, seriously inhibiting their ability to respond to the British attack, but it would finally crush the growing belief of the Desert Fox's invulnerability. Thus, on the eve of Crusader, they authorized a separate operation, dubbed Flipper, which aimed to kill Rommel at his headquarters in Sidi Rafa. On November 10th, 1941, 59 men, mostly from the number 11 Scottish Commando, squeezed into the narrow confines of two British submarines, HMS Torbay and HMS Talisman, at the Egyptian port of Alexandria. They were under the command of the tough Colonel Robert Laycock, who had formed a special military unit for just this sort of behind the enemy lines operation, known universally as the Lay Force. His second in command was an aggressive acting lieutenant, Colonel Geoffrey Keyes, who at 24 years old was the youngest officer in the British Army to hold such a rank. He was also the son of Admiral Sir Roger Keyes, the first director of Britain's combined operation headquarters, who organized commando raids across Europe and North Africa. On the evening of November 14th, the two submarines approached the enemy-occupied Libyan coast, and the men, along with their equipment, began disembarking. Waiting for them was an advanced team of guides who had parachuted in the day before and were to lead them inland. However, from here, things began to go wrong. The coastline was battered by a squall, and despite a Herculean effort by the submarine crews and the commandos, only 36 men of the total force were able to get ashore before the submarines were forced to head back out to sea. Assessing the situation, Laycock was forced to make changes to the original plan. Those who made it ashore would be split into three teams. Laycock commanded the first team, and it was to be his task to secure the landing area and keep their escape routes open. Another team was formed under the command of Lieutenant Roy Cook, whose job it was to sabotage communications to spread confusion amongst the regional Axis forces. Finally, Keyes would lead a detachment of 25 men who would storm Rommel's headquarters and kill the commander of the Africa Corps. On November 15th, 1941, the men set out on a grueling two-day walk across the Libyan desert to their objective, before finally, at midnight on November 17th, 
Keyes was ready to make his move. Spotting the villa, which acted as Rommel's HQ, he and two other men, Captain Robin Campbell and Sergeant Jack Terry, walked up to the front of the house and knocked on the door. Campbell spoke in German to the sentry inside, who opened the door and was immediately rushed by the British Special Forces soldiers. However, the German put up a fierce resistance, forcing Campbell to shoot him. The noise of the shot alerted the occupants of the building, who scrambled to take up arms against the British raiding party that was now storming the villa. The British troops began their search, and within seconds, Keyes charged into a room where he was confronted by the sight of at least 10 German soldiers arming themselves. One of them had succeeded in loading his weapon and took aim at the young Lieutenant Colonel, wounding him. Campbell and Terry hurled grenades into the room before pulling Keyes clear, but there was nothing they could do for him, and he died on the grounds of Rommel's villa. The gun battle that followed was brutal, during which Campbell, who was now in command, was hit in the leg and unable to walk. Realizing the game was up, he ordered Terry to round up the remainder of their team and make their escape back to Laycock, leaving him behind to be captured. The remaining British troops disappeared into the night, but their ordeal was far from over. Linking back up with Laycock, the commandos attempted to board the submarine HMS Torbay, but the weather was so bad that this became impossible, forcing Laycock and his men to seek shelter in nearby caves after being spotted by an unfriendly Arab. The next day, the weather improved, and Laycock was confident they would be able to board the submarine at nightfall. He ordered his men to take up defensive positions around the rendezvous point, an instruction that would prove prudent when they soon began spotting German and Italian troops closing in on their position. As heartbreaking as it must have been for the British commandos, knowing how close they were to retrieval, Laycock knew they could not hold off such a large enemy force, and so he gave orders for them to break up into small groups and scatter into the local hills. Laycock himself joined up with Sergeant Terry, and the two men would spend a truly punishing 41 days, avoiding Axis troops and foraging for food and water, before finally rejoining British forces on Christmas Day. There he learned the terrible truth about what the raid had cost. Of the entire 36-man force put ashore, he and Terry were the only ones to have made it back to British lines. The remaining commandos had all been captured, and two had been killed, including Keyes. The final tragedy of the attack was that while three German colonels had been killed at the villa, Rommel was unscathed because he wasn't even there in the first place. He had in fact been in Rome for a meeting a few days earlier and was scheduled to have flown back, but poor weather again played its part, delaying his flights and sparing him the drama that unfolded that night at his headquarters. Upon his return, inspired by Keyes' courage, he ordered the British officer be buried with full military honors, even having his own chaplain perform the ritual, which was photographed and the pictures sent back to his family with a letter of respect from the man he had tried so bravely to kill. And there you have three World War II raids that went horribly wrong. Please leave a comment down below with your own thoughts and reactions, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. Thank you for watching, and I'll see you next time.